Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If daily news reporting is, as has been said, the first draft of history, books that come out almost contemporaneously to events are, I suppose, the second draft. There was a time, particularly in Washington, when such books would come out years after events or a presidency. They would be the raw meat for historians. Even Woodward and Bernstein's The Final Days came out two years after Nixon resigned. But today the world is speeded up. Today, especially in the wake of Trump, we need the facts much sooner. We need to learn not just how to escape the mistakes of history, but to escape their repetition and to learn quickly from the mistakes of recent times. My guest today, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter Carol Lenick, along with her co-author Philip Rucker, have become the modern masters of this genre. With their first book, A Very Stable Genius, early in the Trump presidency, they telegraphed what was ahead. No one that read their book could have been surprised by what happened next. And now with their latest, I Alone Can Fix It, they have given us a narrative history of the troubled final days of the Trump presidency, and maybe the final days of democracy as we have come to know it. A roadmap of what we might struggle to avoid in the future, and deep insights into the man that the American people elected and then rejected. It is my pleasure to welcome Carol Lennig back to this program to talk about I Alone Can Fix It. Carol Lennig, thanks so much for joining us. I am so, 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 so glad to be back with you, Jeff. Um, it's been a roller coaster of, of lovely interviews, and I know this will be so much fun. Well, thank you. One of the things I want to talk about first is this idea of, of the recentness of all of this, that, that there is a certain rawness to this, that, that historically, when we look at this genre and the works of people like, you know, Bill Manchester and Ted Sorensen and, and even your colleague Bob Woodward, they came after the dust had settled a little bit. This was in the in the moment when so much of this was still raw in everyone's consciousness. Talk about that. I never thought I would hear anyone say that they had um, reported and written a book uh, in about four months. But but that is what Phil and I did. Um, and I'll tell you, we felt a compulsion. We didn't anticipate writing another book about the Trump presidency. When we finished Stable Genius, we were like, okay, good. We stuck that landing. We understand and we, did, and we documented how Trump operates, what motivates him, what the rhythms of this presidency have been, and why so many people who worked for him left or were deeply troubled. But when 2020 happened... <laughs> Uh, it was so consequential, lethal, painful, frightening. We knew we had to go back and do that deep excavation again. And actually, it, it, as an aside, Jeff, you know this because we talked about it before, but many of the people we interviewed for the first book warned us almost, almost like a sigh of relief. Oh, we're so lucky we haven't had a crisis with this president. We don't know how that would go except badly. And indeed, in 2020, a real crisis, one that you could argue is the worst in a century arrived, and Donald Trump, his toolkit was woefully inadequate for it. But our compulsion to write in real time was, this isn't just history. This is current events. Donald Trump remains a incredible force in American politics, the standard bearer of the Republican Party, and we are all still living through a bit of a hangover from his presidency, as, as illustrated by the January 6th 
hearings this week, as illustrated by the rise in COVID deaths among people that still, at this late date, resisted vaccination, often in states where Trump's support is the highest. One of the things, and you, you just touched on this in terms of what people warned you about, that so many of them that tolerated so much for three or four years finally really were shocked by some of these events. That's totally right. And it's actually, I'm so glad you brought it up, Jeff, because it was one of the things we found the most surprising. We're hardened reporters. We try to deliver everything in real time for the Washington Post and for the public to chew on and to understand and make decisions. And even we were just gobsmacked by the, I guess I would say the fear, the the deep fear and near panic of some of these cabinet members and political leaders and Trump advisors and aides, people who genuinely wanted Trump to succeed and had signed on to help him do so, were, were sort of freaking out about the degree to which he would put American lives in peril and the democracy in peril for his own sort of short-term optics game of winning the news cycle and showing people that he was on top of things and he was tough or and ultimately maintaining his grasp on power. The one thing that 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 sort of runs through that and and certainly there's the individual pieces of the things that he did and how that plays out and, and so much of what you've written about in I alone can fix it. But there is also this theme that runs throughout of not really having any historical context for anything. And it's one of the things that, that seems particularly unique to him, that to be able to be in that position with no historical context whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, and also Donald Trump, I mean, lacks any knowledge or interest in how our government works. In our interview with him in Mar-a-Lago, I remember just sort of sitting back and wondering, you know, what part of school classes he missed on American history. Because, no, to be to be honest, I mean, my my teenager um, understands separation of powers and the three branches of government pretty well. And but with Trump, we were talking to him, and he was explaining how disappointed he was in the justices, especially Brett Kavanaugh that he appointed to lifetime positions on the bench because, you know, he expected they would, they would try to help him out and, and, and look into his allegations of election fraud. Now there was no evidence that would be the basis and there was no cause of action that would be the basis. And there was, you know, a lot of issues about, about why the Supreme court should ever look into his, his, his complaint. But he really believed the Supreme Court owed him something, not really grasping that the court has to make decisions based on fact and precedent. You and Phil didn't interview him the first time around. You did this time, as as you talk about, for two and a half hours at Merrill Argo. Do you have a sense, though, that he got worse in that period of time? It's an interesting question because what I could see from the outside, at least, was, well, let me rephrase. What I could tell from our reporting was that in the day after the election, Donald Trump confided and showed some some awareness that he had lost the election. He he asked Kellyanne Conway, his his trusted confidant, you know, how do you think we lost to Biden? 
um, how could this have happened? And so sort of grasping with the reality. But as time moved on and as he pushed away trusted aides and started listening to these fringe conspiracy theorists, especially Rudy Giuliani and Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell, um, he, he became convinced he wasn't a loser. You know, he doesn't like the word loser. And now here was a path for him to not be a loser. And since he's gone to Mar-a-Lago, obviously in our interview, that view has hardened. His inner narrative has hardened. And maybe it's for his political gain, and maybe it's for uh, the fact that he really believes it. Um, but I know that it does benefit him politically to continue to push this idea that America, its, it's elections can't be trusted, the government can't be trusted, only I can save you. That savior complex that, uh, that is the source of a lot of his power. In a way, it comes back to this idea we were talking about a few minutes ago of, of, not, of him not having any historical context, that approaching it, and, and even in terms of his internal dealings with it, from the point of view of kind of a third world dictator, is the only thing that he knew. That was his only frame of reference. And it seems all of this fed into that, which is what he was most comfortable with. I have noticed in many of the interviews that we did that President Trump's reaction to anything is to be tough. How can I be tough? How can I look tough? In fact, looking tough is better than being tough. It's almost like being on a playground and you want to make sure that all the other boys know not to mess with you. Trump was a lot like that in the way he approached foreign leaders. You know, he was furious when he was taken down into the bunker um, on the night of May 29th when Black Lives Matters and George Floyd protesters swarmed around the White House and sort of overwhelmed the Secret Service and the Park Police to a pretty, pretty serious degree. Um, and he was furious not because he was taken to his safety, not furious because there were protesters outside. He was furious because it became public that he was taken to the bunker, and he complained in a screaming voice to his defense secretary, and to his attorney general. Do you know how weak this makes me look to foreign leaders? What do you think they are thinking that I can't control these protesters, that I can't control my own capital? I mean, that is a big motivator for him. And it, 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 makes, it, it stands to reason because the people he was closest to, the people he most wanted the uh, admiration and um, and bromances with um, were were authoritarians. Vladimir Putin, Recep Erdogan. Uh, these were individuals he was cottoning to. And yet, one of the things that that's so interesting about all of this, and and you talk about talking tough being easier than than being tough, is that everything that he threatened firing Mueller, the troops sending the troops into the city, firing Barr, all the things that, that you and Phil talk about, that he was never, and, and there's a whole litany of them, he was never able to pull the trigger on any of them. Well, you know, I thought that in reporting for Stable Genius, that there were a lot of stutter steps where he threatened, 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 and then didn't do it, right? 
But dang, if he didn't try his hardest and dang, if a lot of people didn't step in his way, that happened in that in that period of his presidency. And it happened again in 2020. Um, It happened again in that year because you had we discovered you had Esper, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General Bill Barr, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, constantly going over to the Oval Office for another meeting at which the president was insisting on unleashing the troops. We've got to do something. We've got to do it now. One of Many of the times it was because he had seen a program on Tucker Carlson sort of hyping in, inappropriately and unfactually, I might add, hyping the, the risks that these uh, cities were in because the protesters were so violent and the cities were on fire and you know, Tucker Carlson later got in trouble because he had sort of mixed up three different photographs and pushed them together that they weren't taken at the same time to make a scene that looked more frightening in in one of these cities. Anyway, they were furious, Esper, uh, Barr, and Millie, because they knew it was a bad idea to send armed troops into these places, and they knew it wasn't necessary. They knew the local police had it under control. And they also had a backup plan if the police were struggling or ran into, you know, a really tense situation, then they would be willing to send in these troops. So they really threw their bodies in front of this. Uh, I don't think it was that Trump, you know, got religion or that Trump was uh, weakening on his resolve. Um, They just said it over and over again. In fact, there's a terrifying scene. (laughs) I can't use the language, but where Stephen Miller is telling the president, they're burning our cities down, Mr. President. We've got to do something. And the president's like, yeah, what about that? We've got to send troops there. It's unsafe. And Mark Milley just turns around, General Milley, points at Stephen Miller and tells him to shut the F up. Uh, These cities are not burning down. You know, I'll let you know when you have an insurrection, but there are not people at Fort Sumter firing at the the fort. I will tell you when we have one. We do not have one right now. How was Millie able to stay above the fray? There is this sense, and I think it was the title of one of the Trump books along the way, that, that everything Trump touches dies. And certainly, I mean, you make it pretty clear about all the institutions and individuals that became corrupted. How was he able to stay above the fray? I think it was a pretty delicate dance, actually, and it probably take, took some some deafness um, because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, their, their, their only assignment is to give careful, reasoned military advice, the best military advice to the president as he weighs national security, threats to the homeland, and Milley actually owes his job as chairman to Donald Trump because Trump chose him for the position to spite General Mattis, his former defense secretary. I mean, Mattis didn't like Milley, basically gave him the complete cold shoulder every time they ran into each other. He felt that Milley um, had uh, tried to lobby for the job and, and Mattis had someone else in mind for it. But, you know, whatever, Trump gave him the job. So you would think there'd be a feeling of like feeling a little bit warmly towards the president that chose you. But Milley has to ride that wave above politics in his role. And what he saw 
was not a political threat as much as a national security threat. The threat to democracy was a threat to the core of the nation. And, and I find that fascinating, right? Because here's a president, all he wants to do is maintain his grasp on power, keep the reins in his hands. Hell or high water, that's what he's going to do. But Millie sees a man who is deploying different agents into different parts of the executive and fomenting uh, the beginnings of a coup or an insurrection, and many people call January 6th an insurrection. He sees a person whose actions aren't so political, although that is ultimately the goal, but national security weakening. And um, our reporting indicates that that's the lens through which Milley tried to make his decisions. Our country is a little bit in danger if we don't have a peaceful transfer of power, and I'm going to make sure we have that. Carol Lenick, the book is I Alone Can Fix It. Carol, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.